Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at the last two verses. I think the last verse in this chapter is quintessential gospel-centered Christianity. It's such a beautiful verse to me that um, if you've attended a wedding that I've performed or I married you in the last five years, this is my go-to verse. Ephesians 4.32. But I'm going to start in verse 31, which says, Little bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, most days, I don't know whether it's harder to get forgiveness or to give forgiveness. And it is beautiful and compelling and terrifying to be confronted with both in the same sentence. Would you make us a church, make us a body, make us a people who get forgiveness from you and we turn around and give it just as lavishly and as freely and as abundantly one to another. That's supernatural. I think people would see that and sit up and take note and ask us questions about the hope that we have within us. Would you do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our family has been watching a documentary series, a BBC series called Life Below Zero. I don't know if any of you have seen that. It's a pretty repetitive show, so we're kind of waning in our interest, but it's a show about a bunch of people on the Alaskan frontier living by themselves, solitary lives, and just surviving in the elements. It's a pretty crazy show to see that aspect of it. And most of the people have moved there from somewhere else, but at least one woman is native to the area. We would sometimes misuse the word Eskimo to describe her. She's of the Inuit people group, and she's native to the land. She grew up there. She knows way more than anybody else does, and she can do some pretty incredible things. Well, it has been well documented, and then there was a brief stint where this was debunked, and then it was resurrected again. The understanding that the Inuit people have in their vocabulary... 50 words for the single English word snow. What we describe as snow, they can describe in 50 different words because it's so important to their way of life. Snow that's falling is different than snow that you would use to melt for water, is different than snow you would use to build something, is different than snow that's good for sledding your dogs on. They've got a bunch of different words for snow because it's so essential to their way of life. I saw a cartoon that uh, was a boy at an ice cream truck. There's a little boy and an Inuit man working at the ice cream truck, and the man is saying to the boy, I'm sorry, son, you got to be way more specific My people have 50 words for the word snow cone. I thought that was pretty funny. So that makes sense. Words build the world that we live in. In South Carolina, we don't get snow. We just have one word, snow. I've even heard freezing rain referred to as snow just so that we can say that it snowed on a certain day. We just don't have access to that. We don't have words for that. But if you did, you would, and you would utilize them. 
What's so interesting about our passage is that there are six different words here to describe anger. Six nuances, six hues, six shades to describe what we lazily describe as one single emotion, anger. I'm either angry or I'm not angry, but we hardly explore it any further than that. But in Paul's day, they did a lot of thinking about anger. They saw nuances in anger, and you have writers in the first century who talked about the different aspects of anger. And so you have Seneca, the philosopher, who listed eight different kinds of anger. You've got an early Christian writer in the first century who wrote the stages of anger. Where does anger begin, and how does it proceed, and how does it grow, and what comes next? You have Stoic philosophers who wrote a lot about anger and its different stages and the different experiences of anger. And so it makes sense that Paul, growing up in this world, who's hearing this kind of thing, now sanctified by the Holy Spirit, takes those same philosophical ideas and brings them to bear on the church and how you and I experience anger. And so he gives us six shades of anger. I want to just very briefly list them in five minutes, describe what they mean, and then go on from there. But in verse 31, the very first shade of anger that Paul talks about is bitterness. Now, I know Paul, in these six descriptions, he's not going chronologically. He's not saying it begins here and moves here, and then this is what happens next. But it sure feels like a lot of anger starts in the world of bitterness. That's a very apt place to begin the list. At the end of this past year, uh, I wrote a letter to our session. It was kind of like a performance review letter describing the year and the past and what happened in 2018. And to lead out that letter of what went well and what didn't go well, I confess to our elders this sin that is near and dear to my heart, bitterness. I spent a lot of time in 2018 in the sin of bitterness. And I think I realized in that what a fragile person I really am. I wouldn't want anybody to know that. And how quickly being hurt or being perceived as hurt can begin to rot away at my soul. I know the sin of bitterness very, very Well, bitterness is a sour, cynical, resentful, hard-hearted spirit. Bitterness is like gasoline. We kind of spread it around on a person and a situation. And when I become bitter and resentful towards you, I'm just waiting. I'm Daring, I'm baiting you to light a match so that this thing can erupt into every anger imaginable that I've been itching for. And speaking of erupting, the second word on the list is wrath. That's the explosive rage. That's flying off the handle. A lot of times when we think about anger, we think about wrath because it is so visible to all of us. Wrath is number two. Number three, he says the word anger. He doesn't mean the explosive kind. He means the persistent kind. He means the kind we read about last week, the kind of anger that likes to fester 
It likes to avoid reconciliation. It loves when the sun goes down on itself and it hasn't been resolved. This kind of anger is persistent. Number four, he mentions clamor, which would be the argumentative kind of anger, the shouting, combative, quarrelsome, loudmouth. This is the anger that is ready to pick a fight with another person. That's a different shade of anger. And then, and I'm surprised that he would include this in a list of anger, number five, he mentions slander. Oh, the sin of slander. The sin that can parade as Christian concern. The sin that can disguise itself as a prayer request we're sharing with another person. The, the sin that can duet, dress itself up in the sweetest of intentions and deliver a deadly, deadly poison. This church struggles with and suffers from slander. We slander each other. I know that's true because I've heard it. I know it's true because I've done it. And I know it's true because every church I have ever been a part of, joined, visited, or heard about struggles with the sin of slander. Here's my definition of it. Any accusation we make against another person that's not to that person is slander. Right? That's a simple working definition. I make a charge against somebody, but instead of going to that person, I go to somebody else, and I make the charge about that person to another person. That is slander. Now let me give you the most innocent example possible from my life from the past month. I heard something about a fellow pastor that uh, wasn't a great story about him, and I just wanted to know more details about that story, and so I texted someone closer to the situation, said, hey, I don't know if you heard about this situation, but what's going on over there? What's happening? What's the deal with this person? I want you to freeze frame that, that interaction there, because slander is so hard to see, it's just very easy to miss. When I sent that text, I wasn't angry, and I don't think I felt malicious. I think the prevailing feeling in my heart was curiosity. I just want to know the scoop. I want to know what's going on. But if we're hearing from Ephesians chapter 4 that our words can either build somebody up or tear someone down, and just by asking an innocent question, I've created space for intrigue and gossip and further curiosity then I'm just going to call that thing what it was. That's slander. That's gossip. That's tearing another person down. The Bible gives us beautiful, hard, wise channels to take an accusation and to bring it directly to the person who has offended us. And slander is designed to hijack that channel that the Bible has given us. It is designed to undermine what would otherwise be a beautiful process. Rebuke, biblical rebuke, speaks truth in love. 
slander, it whispers hearsay and malice. Those things have nothing to do with each other. Number five is slander. Number six is malice, which is kind of like bitterness. It's mean-spirited. It's ill will. It's wishing that something bad would happen to a person who has offended us or a person who has hurt us. We're wishing something upon them. At the roots of all these complex shades of aggression, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, is the core set of convictions that I am right, that this person is wrong, and that I am angry. Do you see how these all share that in common? I'm right, he or she is wrong, and because of that, I'm angry. Now here's what is amazing to me about Paul responding to that. He doesn't even touch the categories of who is right and who is wrong. You know when somebody brings their anger to us and, and, and we want to come alongside of them and we want to discern, well, how much of this is your fault and how much is their fault? Did you do more than you thought you did or did they do less than you thought that they did? And, and let's mitigate what you think is the wrongdoing and what you think is wrong with this person and, and the sin that you've applied to the situation. That actually happens in other places in the Bible to, to remove the log out of your eye before you go after the plank. And, and there is a place for that, but Paul... When, when he thinks about the, the wrongdoing that makes us angry, he doesn't even touch it. He says, you know what? You, you, you can have that. He's got something so remarkable, so supernatural, so liberating. It is so in tune with the abundant life that is ours in Christ Jesus. He's not even going to touch the argument about who's right and who's wrong. You can have that. You can have it hook, line, and sinker. We're not even going to get into the situation. I've got something else for you. You've been hurt. You've been wronged. You've been slighted. You've been slandered or stolen from, or underappreciated, or overlooked, or overworked, or underwhelmed, or betrayed, Paul says, I'll give you that. You've got the gasoline. You've got the matches. This whole thing is ready to burn with every hue of anger at your disposal. And in the flesh, you have every right to express that kind of anger. And I don't think a single friend is going to say to you that you shouldn't because it is your right. But hang on a minute, Paul says. But before you try to light this thing on fire in one corner of your life, like related to this person or this event, before this thing is set ablaze because you don't understand how forest fires work in your heart, that you can't set them in one area of your life and leave them unchecked and they won't end in burning your entire life down in smoldering resentment before you set a match to that gasoline. I want to show you something. Or rather, Paul says, I want to show you someone. I want to tell you about Jesus. And then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul pens this verse that is otherworldly. It just 
It's otherworldly. I didn't even know that this was possible. I didn't know you could treat somebody this way. I didn't know you could bear this kind of offense and give this kind of response. It is supernatural. He writes in verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And as it turns out, the only person who can save us from our sin is also the only person who can save us from ourselves and the darkness that we're capable of. The person who can save us from the penalty of sin at our conversion is the same person who can save us from the power of sin today. If there was ever a time, Christian, ever a time to think about the kind, tender-hearted forgiveness of God in Christ, it is today the first day of Lent, six weeks out from Good Friday, when we will see and behold and meditate on Jesus on the cross. God, the God we're here to worship, the God who is present, knows what it is to be hurt, to be wronged, or slighted, or stolen from, slandered, ignored, cheated on, abused, betrayed, abandoned. You and I have done that to him. And you and I are far more guilty before God, far more guilty than any human being could possibly be guilty before us. And the one being in the universe whose anger is always justified, it's always pure. He knows Ephesians 4 how to be angry and do not sin. It's just, it's warranted. That same God takes that same wrath which would be well-placed and well-deserved on us and he turns it on himself to absorb the full heat and fury. When Jesus was arrested and stripped and beaten and mocked, and nailed to a cross, and hung there on Golgotha until he died, he died unjustly for the just anger that could be applied to us for our sin. We should have gotten that anger. We deserved that wrath. And God turned it on himself. And when he did that, He offered to us what no man, woman, or child could achieve for ourselves. He gave us the lavish and the priceless gift of forgiveness. It turns out you can summarize the entire 1,000 page book of the Bible in just the last five English words of Ephesians chapter 4. God in Christ forgave you. 
God in Christ. Imagine this. He forgave you. He absorbed the offense. He paid the penalty. And God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages He might show to us the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards those who are in Christ Jesus. The kindness of God is just getting started. It's immeasurable, which means that it's designed to last forever. We've tasted it, we've experienced it, and we will go on experiencing the kindness of God forever and ever and ever. This is one of my prayers in the season of Lent for our church, especially as we dive into this book study together on joy, that Going forward throughout the week, these five English words will catch in our throats and the sheer glory of them will take our breath away. God in Christ forgave me and he took my sin from me. Christian, I'm not going to belabor application here. I just want Ephesians 4 to drop a gift on our doorstep that we couldn't imagine in our wildest dreams. The kind, tender-hearted forgiveness that is applied to you is now available to you. What God does in us and for us can actually become a blueprint for what we turn around and do for another person. Until God did this in our life, until he forgave us and gave us the joy of experiencing forgiveness, this was not possible for us. In the flesh, this was not possible. We had to walk down the very dark path in response to hurt and pain of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. That's all we had seen. That's all we knew. That's all we could possibly do. But now that God changed the playing field and he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, he doesn't hold them against us, he keeps no record of wrongs, it is now for the first time possible in the new life in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit to not hold an offense against another person. We actually have the power today in Christ to choose a heart that is kind and it's tender and it's compassionate and it forgives. Because we get forgiveness, we get to give forgiveness. Because God gave it to us, We get to surprise people at every turn and give it away to them. We are full. They will be full. We will experience forgiveness in the gospel. Let's pray together.
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And would you please, we beg you, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.